Hello, Independent Life Nation. Oh boy, we got an amazing two-part episode that we're going to be bringing to you because it's just too good. And we're talking to Lindsay Telg. She is an occupational therapist who has been somebody that we've been working with at Centers for Independent Living for a few years now related to disaster preparedness. She went up to Hurricane Michael and into the shelters and has amazing experiences and accounts and lessons learned from that, which we'll, we'll hear about in, the, in these episodes. And also we collaborated with her to create a 100-hour curriculum for incarcerated inmates who have disabilities a very innovative one that's trauma-informed and also has a component into it in which the inmates will learn how to tell their own story and rewrite it and to be able to do it in a way that they can reintegrate into a community that they can be successful and achieve in. And so we have some experiences where the occupational therapy field and independent living come together. As you'll hear in this episode, the field of occupational therapy is so aligned with independent living and it is not the medical model. I know a lot of people that I've come uh, to work with in independent living, when they hear the word occupational therapist, immediately think about you know clinical setting and the medical model. At least Lindsay's work and many of the occupational therapists that I work with, it couldn't be further from the truth. They really look at the social and environmental context in which disability occurs and really tries to you know account for those factors more than looking at the individual and trying to then, quote unquote, cure them from what's going on. So in these episodes, we're going to hear from Lindsay and her personal journey through disability, anxiety and depressing and her coming to terms with it. We're going to hear her explain what is occupational therapy all the way from the very founding moments of occupational therapy to its tenants, to its practices, who and how it serves. She gets into how occupational therapists really work on addressing people's identity, their habits, and their routines. Oh man, I could talk to her all day about those, those kind of things. And of course, she then goes into talking about our experiences and uh, how independent living and occupational therapy, our, our worlds have intersected. And um, she rounds out talking a lot about how leaning into our vulnerabilities with courage and being able to do that can be very healing and help others as well in their process of looking at their own stories, seeing how they can rewrite it and make it a better version of their own reality to live independently. So this is part one of our two-part series with the one, the only, Lindsay Tell. Well, Lindsay, it's a pleasure to have you here. We don't do many like face-to-face -face interviews because of COVID and everything yeah. else like that. And uh, it's, it's just a joy to have face-to-face -face when we can, and especially Agreed. with you and our history and everything. So for our listeners who don't know you as well as I do, maybe start us out with just telling us about how disability has come into your world, either personally or professionally, and uh, what that has been all about. Sure. So. Um 
most of my life, I wouldn't have used the word disability. Mm -hmm. But when I look back with the lens of an occupational therapist, I realize that I was experiencing a lot of disability, mainly from anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so most of my adolescence and well into college and even starting OT school uh, as an occupational therapy student, I was trying to figure out how to balance really severe debilitating depression and anxiety alongside all the things that I wanted to do and be. Wow. Um, and figuring out how to integrate those things. And that wasn't the reason that I chose to become an occupational therapist on the surface. Uh-huh. But probably underneath that subconsciously was part of that calling. You know, was was trying to probably sort out my own stuff uh-huh. uh, in, in the lens of how do I help other people. Research is me, sir. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll learn something about myself along the way. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, being an occupational therapist has in, in many, many ways kind of been the thing that helped me the most uh, to get some of those things under control, get the treatment that I needed, form a disability identity around what it means to be a person who struggles with depression and anxiety. Mm. And all those things, although those things are not acute for me right now, it's been a number of years since, since that has been a debilitating issue, it of course informs my world now. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who's had chronic depression or anxiety, you know, it's sort of just living around the corner. You don't really know what might make it just show up one day. Right. It doesn't matter how great your life is. It doesn't matter how wonderful your self-care package is. Uh-huh. Your brain chemistry is just sort of wired to get hijacked sometimes. And so for me, um, it's just been really interesting to sort of develop an understanding of that personally through uh-huh therapy and through books that I read and conversations I have, but also through my studies and my work as an occupational therapist. And so with occupational therapy, of course, uh, we work primarily with people who have disabilities. So generally people who, most people think of things like stroke, children who are born with genetic or congenital abnormalities or deficits. A lot of occupational therapy, though, and especially my work, has tried to get away from some of that lens of uh, strictly focusing on disability Mm -hmm. and thinking more about ability. Um, Thinking more about, you know, it's not you as the person who has something wrong or flawed. Mm -hmm. It might be something about the tasks or the environment we've put you in. Oh, I love to Um, hear this. And so how do we actually just make the world work for you? Because there's not anything inherently wrong with you. Right. One of the things I wanted to get into is the, the whole medical model yeah. and how oftentimes people outside of OT may look at, oh, when they hear OT, they may think, oh, medical model, mm-hmm. and throw the medical model flag right away. But from learning more about OT through you and through other people that I know, um, then you are more focused on the social environmental conditions that disability occurs in yep. and, and focuses on ability versus the dis right. and, and that, like taking the dis out of disability. <laughs> And, and I think that's a very important thing to illuminate because, you know, maybe that was true or not, I don't know, in the past, but um, I think that can be an inhibitor for people, at least in the Independent Living Network, to collaborate yeah. with people, especially in OT. I'm not sure about other fields if they've been as progressive as the OT field, but, but it definitely seems to me that there's been a lot there of progress towards moving from the medical model to more of a social Yeah. Yeah, history of OT is kind of interesting. So the the field started in, we actually just celebrated our 100th anniversary in 2017. So the field was formally developed in 1917 after World War I. Okay. And they used to be called rehabilitation aids um, or restoration aids was kind of the original term. And it started with predominantly men, of course, coming back from 
World War One uh-huh. with issues of you know blindness and limb loss and uh, what used to just be called shell shock. Of course, mm. we know is PTSD now. And literally, you know, these men were the breadwinners. You go back a hundred years, of course, the women didn't really work outside the home very much. So these mm-hmm. men, literally, their job and their occupations were very closely linked. Now, as occupational therapists, we don't define occupation as job. Occupation is the stuff that you need and want to do in the course of your day to live a meaningful and fulfilled life. Mm -hmm. But in 1917, that involved a lot of work. (laughs) If you were a man, that involved earning a wage that supported your family. So what do you do when you come back from war and you can't do those things? Uh, You can no longer earn a living wage. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of meaning in life at that time was being a man who earned money to support yourself and your family. Right. So a group of people, and it started with psychologists and physiotherapists and a few other kind of professions got together and formed this idea of occupational therapy, that we should use work and the things that are meaningful for people that they do to help them get better from Uh whatever is kind of ailing them. And so in a really tangible sense, it started with teaching. uh, There's there's an old story that's always thrown about, about teaching some of the men who came back uh, blind from war how to become piano tuners. And teaching, you know, leatherworking and crafts and things that people could do from a seated position when they had experienced limb loss. Uh And so the whole root of our field is really in this psychosocial realm. It's treating soldiers who came back from war and had lost their identity uh, as, yeah. as workers and as family members. And so over the years, OT, I don't think has lost that, but of course the medical model grew. Mm-hmm. And we work in the medical model. You'll mm-hmm. find us in hospitals and you'll find us in um, you know, outpatient centers, but you'll also find us in schools and you'll mm-hmm. find us in the community and That's you'll right. find us working in nonprofits and in academia. Yeah. And so many of us don't work in the traditional medical model sense. I would imagine like back in the time of World War One, so if, if men were married, um, it wasn't a time necessarily where I imagine that women were had the availability to work. Uh, like even today, um, you know, women make less wages, you know, for a job. I think it's like 70 or 80 cents on a dollar yeah, to what men it's make. 83 cents on a dollar. As we talk about this, it's yeah. Women's Month. <laughs> and, and so there's still a lot of work to be done. done. And 100 years ago, I'd imagine like the, the capacity if the person was coming home and had a wife or, or had a partner, just the availability of, of work yeah. wasn't there. So it was a, a lot of survival. Yeah, I don't even think women had the right to vote at that time. I think it was the 1920s. Right, yeah. yeah. So a lot yeah, different. definitely not. So it was, it was a lot of um, recognizing that people derive meaning from what they do. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of are what you do from an occupational therapy lens. And when you lose the ability to do the things you want or need to do, it's really kind of a crisis of the soul. Right. Like what? Yeah. Identity. All the tangible yeah. things, of course, of how do I earn money? How do I support my family? How do I have a, you know, a roof yeah. over my head? How do I feed myself? Yeah. But beyond all of that, a real kind of existential loss of who I am and what my purpose is in my life when I can't do or yeah. There's a concept called occupational justice, which is less about what I can't do and war- more about what the world does not let me do. Ooh. And that that creates a lot of that same existential kind of crisis or loss of identity or, or the, oppor- the lack of opportunity to form an identity. Wow. Is really critical to occupational justice. This, I love that term. 
it's it's what an would amazing the field. World let me do. Yeah, that goes it. back to that social environmental mm -hmm. context in which we see uh, disabilities or abilities occurring in. Right. So during that time where you know it can be unmooring for like who am I? My identity is now taken away. Purpose in life, fulfillment is now threatened. Was there any, whether it was OT or outside of OT, um, you know, attention towards that psychosocial, emotional space that people probably were struggling with? Or, uh, you know, is that something else later on down the road that seemed to be really uh, getting you know, more attention and treatment for? So philosophically, that was the focus back in 1917 when our field was just developing. Wow, that's so far ahead of the time. It was way less about let's get you back to work and let's get you, um, you know, employed and let's get you functional and let's fix your body. It was way more about recognizing that these men that were coming back from war were lost and needed something to do to, to moor them, yeah. to anchor yeah. them. And that because what those men did pre-war was work and and you know they were industrious and they had something to do mm -hmm. and contribute that was a large part of what the activity was so it wasn't exercise it wasn't let's stand up from the table 15 times and get your legs stronger <laughs> it was let's teach you how to make you know leather products yeah. let's teach you how to create metal rivets uh -huh. let's teach you how to tune a piano oh. um, and it, it wasn't because we were just trying to get them to work it was because there was a recognition that giving them the opportunity to do something, to yeah. contribute something, would help that part of them that was really lost and shaken. Yeah. That's powerful. -war. That's like, yeah, it goes yeah, to our <clears throat> identity and purpose. Yeah. That's huge. So fast forward then to like more modern times. How would you explain to the people now today, what is occupational therapy, the field look mm -hmm. like, who might benefit from the types of services that an occupational therapist would provide? So I think of occupational therapy a lot like medicine. Like it's an easy way for people to understand, right? Uh -huh. You have a doctor. You don't go to one doctor for every single thing that, that could ever arise uh -huh. in your life. You have a pulmonologist. You have a cardiologist. You have a, you know, you have people that specialize. And occupational therapy is a lot like that. So therapist, they might be very skilled at helping support your child in school to succeed academically and overcome any challenges or barriers in the classroom environment, uh -huh. but they may not know the first thing about how to help you if you've had a stroke, right? And so we all uh -huh. kind of specialize and differentiate in those different areas. So someone might be able to help a stroke patient out, sure. but not help in school. Right. Okay. That depends. One of the yeah. beautiful things yeah. I love about OT as a career is that it's fairly easy to transition between things. If okay. you decide at one point that working in the school system is no longer for you mm -hmm. with some training and CEU classes, you can go work with clients awesome. who've had stroke. The idea of occupational therapy is really broad, and, and I always joke that we kind of suffer from a marketing problem because <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to pin down. Yeah, yeah. But if you think about the general approach of our profession is that we help people be able to do what they want and need to do by identifying what is getting in the way of that uh -huh. and helping to either accommodate or remediate. Uh -huh. So if it is something that, you know, maybe your hand isn't working after a stroke and we can help work on your brain to rewire and help your arm start working again, that might be part of it. But maybe it's your, you know, it's been a few months, 
your arm's not getting better fast enough, then Mm -hmm. it might be modifying your kitchen or figuring out a different approach to your job or teaching you how to use a talk to text instead of having to type. Okay. Um, So it might look more like just figuring out how to work around the challenge that you're experiencing. Identifying barriers and overcoming them. Exactly. I love it. And that happens across the lifespan. So if you think about the youngest of our clients are our NICU babies, their jobs as NICU babies, uh, as babies, as infants, is just to eat, grow, breathe. Uh And that's really challenging uh, for some of our premature infants. And so our NICU OTs will work to help them develop a suck, swallow, breathe Mm. reflex, help them learn how to feed, help mom and dad or family members learn how to support baby during feeding, all the way up to some of our oldest clients who are living in you know, memory care units or assisted living facilities and who are trying to figure out how to maybe maintain dignity at the end of their lifespan. Gotcha. How do I toilet and shower in uh-huh. a way that protects and yeah. honors my dignity? Right. What do I do when I can't move around quite as well? Uh-huh. Um, what happens when I can't maybe remember the sequence of events that I should use when getting dressed in the morning or when eating. Wow. Um, so all throughout the lifespan, there can be reasons why somebody has difficulty getting done what they need to do. And in those moments, occupational therapists can help. Wow, that's a brilliant explanation. From cradle to grave, there for all disabilities, all ages, yeah. there's something for everybody. I think it's really important, too, to say it's not you don't necessarily have to have a disability. So a lot of the clients I see in my office uh-huh. don't necessarily have a diagnosis. They okay. don't necessarily have something that is, quote, unquote, wrong. Mm-hmm. But there is something about their life that is not working. There's a mismatch between what they need to do and how well they're able to do it. And I love that. So to execute on it. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes there's gotcha. a disability. There's something we label or name. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, I don't know why I can't get this thing done. <laughs> and occupational therapists are really skilled at breaking down tasks. We call it activity analysis. Huh. So I, I like to think of us as the master overanalyzer. <laughs> we can analyze that task down to the tiniest degree, wow, figure it. out right. why it is that that yeah. task is hard for you. Where's the right. breakdown? Right. Where is the train jumping the tracks? Okay. And then figure out how to help get that train rolling again, Wow. so to speak. Does that sometimes, like uh, I'm thinking of someone that maybe doesn't have a diagnosable mm-hmm. disability, but they're just something in the way, they're not able to execute. It almost sounds like to me, um, it goes back to where you were kind of talking about at the beginning is like, does it have to sometimes do with like the who am I, the fulfillment, getting out of my own way Mm -hmm. to be able to achieve what I'm actually looking for and doing it through the minutia of the mastery of over analysis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We talk a lot in in OT about roles, habits, and routines. Roles, habits, and routines. Roles, habits, and routines. And so roles are the things that you have to do in life. You're a student, you're a dad, you're a mom, you're an employer, you're a boss. It built into that role, we have our own conceptions and society gives us some conceptions of what it means. When I say dad, there are things that come to your mind immediately. When I say employee, when I say disabled person, right? Those are roles that sometimes we are given by society. We're told what it means to be disabled. Uh Sometimes it is in conflict with us. What society thinks disabled means and maybe what I think disabled means Maybe I don't even like that role. Maybe I don't even want that role. I don't want to be considered disabled. doesn't matter what my abilities or or challenges might be. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about roles, that's a huge piece of it is are the roles that you're living the ones that you chose? 
or was or, thrusted upon or you. thrusted upon you. Yeah. And what are you attributing to that role? What goes into that role? And do you even agree? The, the, the tasks that go into being a dad. Yeah. Are they the tasks that you endorse as being yeah. part of a dad yeah. or a mom or whatever? Um, or do you get to make that role up for yourself? Do you get to decide what tasks wow. go into dad? Wow. Um, and so those are the kind of routines and habits that we build as a result. So routines are the things that we do kind of just day in and day out that yeah. make up that role. Uh-huh. You know, I drop the kids off at school, I pack a lunch, I pick them up from school, I help them with their homework. Those are the routines. You know, uh, as you're saying that, man, it's so powerful what you're saying there between roles, habits, and routines. For, for I'm just thinking like behavioral change or mm-hmm. stopping doing things that aren't good for us or starting to do things that are good for us. Are you familiar with uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear? Oh, it's a book. He, he's a he's an academic and in, in the behavioral yeah. and, and health sciences, and you know he talks about behavioral change. He really has a an interesting approach that's kind of um, you know, take goes away from specific goal setting like mm-hmm. the smart goals, and he says it's more important to work on our identity as somebody who does physically is physically active before taking somebody that's sedentary and saying you have to have specific measurable attainable mm-hmm. realistic and time oriented mm-hmm. goals start shifting your identity as somebody who does read if you're looking to pick up more of a habit of reading and working on more of identity yeah. change that I, will then lead to the behavioral change mm-hmm and how we see ourselves. He was a guest on Brene Brown's Unlocking Us podcast not, okay. not too long ago. No when he said it, I All thought, right. I think that was the title yeah, of the book, yeah. but as you're describing yeah. it, yeah. yes, I listened to that podcast and him share a little bit about his work, and I thought, he's an OT, <laughs> or he could be or right? should be. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. But it did. It really resonated because his whole kind of point was instead of thinking about if I'm going to exercise, I should go to the gym three days a week, yeah. and then if I don't go to the gym three days a week, it means I've failed. Right. Instead, it's, why do I want to go to the gym? Well, I want to be a healthy person. Yeah. I want to be, why do I want to be Start healthy? With why. <laughs> I want to be healthy because I want to be there for my kids when they're older. Right. Okay. So what's one change I could make today that Small would help change, me be like 1%. there for my kids? Yeah. I just won't swing through and grab fast food. You know, yeah. I'll pack my lunch one day a week. Yeah. And when you like drive it all the way back through whatever example, his, his whole point was that it's a lot easier to stick to something like I'll just skip my Starbucks run this morning or I'll, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is yeah. for you, than to say, I got to go to the gym three times a week. Yeah. If you're not a gym person, you're not going to succeed at that. Yep. Um, but why did you want to do it anyway? Yeah, the why. Why? Why? Huge. What was the point of the gym? Yeah. Start with why. And, and then how many times are we beating ourselves up psychologically because we fail using that old model that is archaic and doesn't really move the needle on real behavioral change. And then we, we might see ourselves as failing, chronically failing, and go through yo-yo diets or yo-yo yeah. activities or you know, dropping off and you know, those kind of changes. One of the things he said in that podcast that really stuck with me was, you know, we always have this idea that in order for something to become a habit, you have to do it for 20 days or whatever. Uh-huh. And he said, that's, that's not true. If you to want it to out. be a habit, you have to do it all the time. <laughs> not a habit anymore yeah, if right? you quit. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, that's so beautiful because habits in a lot of ways from an OT perspective are the unintentional things we do. We, uh-huh. we walk in and, you know, I walk in and I hang my keys on the key hook by my front door yeah. all the time. Yeah. I don't think about it. I just do it. Yeah. And at the same time, if I wanted to do something different, I'd have to make a point to do it. To do it. Yeah. I'm not going to just change my habit and put them on the table every uh-huh. day yeah. without 
consciously telling myself there's a reason I should put my keys on this table. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, our habits really become our routines and our routines become our roles <laughs> is really kind of critical to yeah. occupational therapy. And so for, for somebody who's coming into my office to talk with me, that's the, the kind of train we back up, the little track we go back through. What are the roles? What are you doing that are part of those roles? And what are the little pieces of things you're doing every day that facilitate you yeah. doing that role? And does any of it really make sense? Does it match your values? Is it what you want? Is there something we need to just kind of change about that, that whole approach? What I, what I love about it is is that when you say, you know, master analyst, <laughs> task analyst, or yeah. you're a master at these tasks analyzing, and a simple thing, like you said, hanging your keys, could actually break down into like 10 different steps or something. Yes. And, and, and yeah, you know, something <laughs> like tying your shoes or like these small, we think, mm -hmm. of, you know, is one behavior, it actually can be broken down into all these different kind of tasks and analyze it. And I think where uh, James Clear is coming from Maybe he reverse engineers it, but he talks about being 1% better every day. Mm -hmm. And the compound interest is, is that within a year, you're 37 times better mm. than when you started that year. That's and, and kind of builds out maybe those tasks and, and everything else like that. You know, what I also hear, hear you saying is, in order to do all of this, we almost have to go through like an awakening. Yeah. Like wake up. Maybe we're like in this abyss and we're like in this illusion of what we are just buying into subconsciously these roles, you know, right. that are thrusted upon us and what they mean by society. And we're just going along with it. You know, this is what it means to be a customer at a restaurant. This is what it means to be a wait staff at a restaurant. We fit into these roles. And, and as soon as we, you know, walk in, uh, whatever, which one we're at, we start, boom, we could just go right into yeah. it without thinking about it. It's almost like subconscious. So it almost seems like it's a bit of an awakening that uh, happens. Yeah. I love that, that idea. Um, you know, I think for many of us, we we get the chance to make some choices along the way. You know, we, we do have choices in our lives about do we take path A or path B and where we end up. And so we, you know, we end up being whoever we are at a certain stage in life as a result of those choices. And a lot of us, and, and I think there, it's important to acknowledge in this conversation the idea of privilege because mm. there are a lot of us who have way less choices on that path. Yeah. Some of us are afforded the opportunity to make lots of choices. Uh -huh. We have a lot of autonomy over who we get to become at any point in time. And some of us, and often for people in the disability community, those choices are limited mm -hmm. uh, due to access issues, the inability to get the therapies they need, the inability to get the training or equipment or tools that they need, you know, societal stigma around what somebody who presents in a certain way can or cannot do. Mm. And so when some of those choices are taken away from you, that conversation gets more complicated because yeah. it's less than about, well, did you pick this role and how do we just change it? Uh, there's a lot of privilege in the idea that I can just look at my life and say, you know, I might have made some uh, some wrong choices along mm -hmm. the way or this didn't turn out like I thought. I'm just going to mm -hmm. rewind the tape and, and change things. For some people in the community for lots of different reasons, socioeconomic, racial, you know, mm -hmm. ability, um, that's not as easy. Right? There are very real environmental barriers to being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think a huge piece of it then and a, and a huge role that many occupational therapists are involved in is the advocacy piece. 
Mm. Um, and again, that kind of loops back to occupational justice, the idea that <laughs> everyone should have the opportunity to have that awakening, that fundamentally and philosophically what an occupational therapist wants or what our profession wants is that everybody have kind of the same opportunity to make choices and have self-determination about who they're going to become. Wow. So let's go in on specifics then. So I love this. How can the field of uh, occupational therapy exercise occupational justice in a way that does give people who don't have privilege more opportunities? So what does that actually look like? How can that? How can the field actually do that for people that are low income, yeah. marginalized, disabilities, you know, racial, ethnical disparities, whatever they may be? What is specifically can the field of occupational therapy do to give more choices to people? I think it happens on a couple of different levels. So we have a, an advocacy wing. We have folks that you know, like many organizations, lobby at the state and national level for policies that are more equitable and provide more opportunities. So a simple one here in Florida is that recently our state board, uh, not our state board, but our state association was working to have occupational therapy listed as a qualified mental health profession. Wow. We all know that mental health has, there are huge needs and not enough therapists or services to provide that. Oh, yeah. Currently, in most states, occupational therapists, despite our training and our background um, and despite advanced training that is available to us, are not able to bill for mental health services. And there are, I believe, right now nine, it might be 11, there might have been two that just passed, but I think there were, last I checked, nine states where occupational therapists can be listed as qualified mental health professionals based on some additional training and certification. And on a really simple level, that just uh-huh. opens up the pool. It yeah. creates more opportunities for people to access services when there was a lack of providers or a, a not enough providers in a certain area. It means the ability to bill Medicaid uh-huh. and Medicare for some of those services in those states. And that so would give more people access to right. your services. Yeah, so some of it's happening on that policy level. Yeah. Um, it sometimes looks like lobbying for more visits once upon a time and it's been about 10 years if you were met if you had medicaid you got eight visits for occupational therapy all right eight visits after a stroke you're just getting to know somebody nothing yeah i mean that does nothing and there were ways that you could request more time and get authorizations and all that but why why do we need to jump through all those hoops right that makes a burden on the healthcare system to jump through hoops when we know that a person is going to need more visits than eight and so that did change. Uh, now most of the Medicaid plans do offer s- substantially more visits. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's things like that. Recently, there was some success nationally at repealing the Medicare cap. And so there used to be a cap on services uh-huh. um, that amounted to about 12 visits okay. for occupational therapy, depending on you know kind of a few factors. Um, but generally not sufficient. If you think of Medicare being our oldest population, we want fall prevention, we want balance training, we yeah. want safety awareness, you know, folks with mild cognitive impairment, we want to keep them functioning safely in their home for as long as possible. Right. And we would just run out of visits because heaven forbid we're addressing one of those this things. This is making headway probably too. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then somebody has a stroke or something happens. Now we've, you know, now yeah. we've burned up those visits. So there was some success recently. They were able to repeal that cap on services. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unlimited, but it, it does allow for substantially more visits and it's much easier to access additional visits gotcha. if needed. So some of that is policy level, right? Uh-huh. Like we just have policies in place as part of our medical model that are yeah. very limiting for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. 
because if, if people don't have access to these services, yeah. then they're not going to have access to the opportunities that you all could you know, lay out for people right. and, and teach them about that are there or create them mm-hmm. that aren't there. I really like the angle of going in on helping to support like mental health. And it almost seems to me the way you describe the inception of occupational therapy, like you've been there since the jump street, you know, yeah. you're like you're addressing like disidentifying kind of issues that people were having as they're coming back. Like, who am I? I can't work anymore. And giving me life purpose. Like that to me seems like it's absolutely in the realm of mental health. And, it, and I'd imagine occupational therapy would be more on the non-pharmaceutical approaches to mm-hmm. addressing mental health from from the research I've read, it seems to be more efficacious, you know, than than a lot of the you know techniques and practices <clears throat> that are you know traditionally used in mental health to help people out. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't say that OT as a profession is is opposed to medication. You know, again, looking at that whole person is you know maybe that is part of the puzzle to treat, but mm-hmm. also recognizing that medication doesn't in and of itself solve things. Got it. it helps balance brain chemistry. Uh-huh. Maybe gets people stable yeah, enough that's, to, to, to start then working with. That's huge. It's yeah. hard to learn new skills when your brain is not sure. cooperating with that with that process. But those new skills don't just med, they're not magically acquired by a pill. Yeah. Um, and so there does need to be some kind of intervention Gotta to help teach yeah. whatever is missing. And yeah. for you know, for a lot of the kids that I see, for example, for various reasons, they struggle with emotional regulation. And it's very hard to learn about what your body is feeling and what it means as far as an emotion and mm-hmm. then what it means as far as a coping skill if you're fighting your brain chemistry. Yeah. So many of the kids that I see are on some form of medication, you know, that not that I prescribe, that my, uh-huh. their parents work with their doctor on. And man, does it make a difference when they're able to process what's going on in their own body uh-huh. and they're able to slow down and start to recognize oh when my tummy feels kind of tight it means i'm nervous and when i'm nervous i can take a break wow you know but that that chain of thought has to be built in right they're not going to magically know from the pill that yeah tight tummy equals nerves yeah. equals coping yeah. skills skills and you know, cognitive behavioral yeah. skills still need to be yeah you know put into there so w- with um you know occupational therapy and independent living. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that occupational therapy really helps out with independent living, living independently? Yeah, again, I think that micro or uh, overanalyzing piece uh, uh-huh. helps a lot because when we talk about independent living skills, that looks different. If we're here in Gainesville, there's you know our RTS bus system. Mm-hmm. If you go to Ocala or Archer, that's a game changer. Yeah. Right now we have issues, different issues of transportation, different uh-huh. things that are required to help navigate or move around town. Uh-huh. And so I think a lot of the challenges that some programs have with independent living skills is kind of a blanket approach. Like let's teach you transportation skills. Uh-huh. Let's teach you cooking skills. Yeah. Without enough awareness of that individual person's circumstance in the context of the environment the where environment. they're living. Yeah. And I think occupational therapy can really help, especially for those clients that have some really specific needs. Mm-hmm. Probably a large enough group of, of people who need independent living skills training and support, a kind of just general curriculum mm-hmm. works. Yeah. Right? Like issues are common among, uh, you know, among yeah. things you need to learn. Right? Sure. Like there are just sure. generic things you yeah. need to learn. Yeah. But there are lots of times where for some reason that doesn't stick and I think we have a tendency just in public policy in general to assume that the person didn't do the work or we didn't, you know, <laughs> they just didn't, 
They didn't learn yeah. it. You know, they, yeah. they just tried harder or they missed a class. Yeah. I think a lot of times it's that that person might have needed something a little different. You right. know, that curriculum that works really well for 75% of the people uh-huh. isn't going to work for that one person. And that's where I think occupational therapy can help with those folks that really have some very specific, nuanced kind of things that need to be considered. We can help to kind of analyze what what happened. Where is the breakdown? Why is this person struggling to be successful in this environment? Um, and what is it about, again, not just the person, but the tasks we're asking them to do and the environment in which we're asking them to do it mm-hmm. that's creating some of this challenge? I think that's where, like, Centers for Independent Living in the OT field can really come together. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, so we provide some of the, like, independent living skills classes that can have some universal applications for everybody. You know, we do do some of the paratransit services and employment services, mm-hmm. and we do all these other kind of things. Um, one of the things I think we can do better in is having these types of assessments that yeah. can really uh, look at the behaviors or the, the habits or the routines or the way people identify themselves and really use that as uh, a guide. You know, to especially to specifically work with people. Yeah. You know, we do really good at capturing access and utilization and satisfaction of our mm-hmm. services, but we're I think we could really improve would be on some of these uh, assessments that OTs use to help to surface some of the very specific things along the way that you can deconstruct and then reconstruct in a new way to help benefit yeah. people's independent living. One of my favorite assessments is the, it's called the COPM. It's the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. Uh And it really just asks people to list the stuff that's not going right for them. What's hard, what's challenging. doesn't matter why. We'll get Uh into that another time. But just what's not working for you? And then it asks them to identify the top five. You know, I always explain it to people. If I could wave a magic wand and just make five of these problems disappear, which ones would just change your life? Uh And those are probably the five we want to think about. And then it asks them to rate their own performance on a scale of 1 to 10, how well they feel they're doing that task, Mm -hmm. and then how satisfied they feel about that performance. And I always find that a little interesting because it gets to some of that value and motivation piece of the puzzle Uh and that sense of self-efficacy. Because it always is a little surprising to me when someone rates their performance as low but is fairly satisfied with it. And that often suggests to me this belief that we've somehow accidentally instilled in this person that maybe they can't do better like maybe that's as good as it's going to get you know I don't do great at it but I I'm, I've learned to be happy with it and there there's something to that I mean like there are moments where you know I'm never going to be a mathematician so I'm happy enough that I can use a calculator yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> there's some truth to yeah. owning what we're good at or sure. not good at but in this context I think that it helps to dig in a little bit and figure out what what's your thought process like we're okay with being subpar or mediocre yeah or just that you know i think especially in the disability community and i've even gotten that message you know implicitly as someone who just struggles with some mental health things Uh is that if i'm not if i'm not sort of killing it you know if i'm doing okay (laughs) i should be happy with that and it would be easy to take that message and say, well, yeah, you know, I'm not achieving all the things I want to achieve, but I, I guess all things considered, I'm making it. Right. Well, why am I not Just entitled to do more than make it? Right. Why does my history of depression mean I don't get to do more than that? And so I think with some of those clients, you know, that digging in piece, the COPM can be a neat place to start. 
Um, yeah, it sounds like a great assessment. Yeah, because it just gives you a little insight into what the person's thought process yeah. is. So there, there's this quote, it kind of reminds me of what, uh, what you're talking about that goes towards, you know, don't worry about setting goals too high. Worry about setting goals too low and yeah. achieving them. In other words, like if we set our goals here that are lower than what we're ca capable of and we achieve them, we might be satisfied, like you're saying, yeah. with, you know, not maybe performing as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, values, skills, motivation? Are those a for the COPM? Yeah. Yeah, it talks about performance and satisfaction okay. with tasks that that you feel you know you aren't yeah. doing well at or that are causing problems. Gotcha. Um, so it might be things people can write. You know, I get to work late on time, mm -hmm. and I'm not happy with that. You know, so my ability to get places on time, the performance is wow. really low, and I'm not satisfied with that. Um, and so we can kind of track then. Now, as an OT, then we go back and go, okay, well, why are you showing up late uh -huh. places? Is it an issue with attention and memory? Are you forgetting you need to go somewhere? Is it time management? You're not estimating the amount of time it's going to take to get something done. Yeah. Is it a barrier? You know, there's only one bus route, and if I miss it by two minutes, then I'm 30 minutes late because the bus isn't coming again. Yeah, yeah. What are the reasons that um, are getting in the way? So you go through the what to the why. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so that's one area I think like centers and uh, OT have some space in is uh, helping out with the assessments and, and getting in there. And I like this one a lot, the one that you're bringing up here yeah. and how we can use that intermittently to see how people are doing and shifting. Hey listeners, we're going to pause it right here and we're going to save the second half of this interview for the next episode. And I encourage you to go right into it and listen to it. But we have shared a lot to chew on right there in our discussion with Lindsay, and we have much more to share with her. So I hope that you have enjoyed what you've heard and are definitely teased enough to hear the second part of the interview. I think, believe it or not, it only gets better and really gets into some really important discussions on how to lean into our vulnerabilities with the utmost courage, because that is something that can not only lift ourselves up, but it can lift others as well. Tune in for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.